<laughs> well, again, Merry Christmas to you. Thank you for taking some of your holiday season to spend it with us. Uh, as I began, you know, Christmas is a pretty big deal uh, for us. And so uh, to prepare for this message, I thought I'd consult some really scholarly websites to make sure I know what I'm talking about. And so a couple of days ago, I went to Facebook.com uh, to ask a question to hear people's, you know, food hot takes. Like, what's your strong opinion about food? Uh, I have a couple of them. I'll just share one. Uh, for those of you that say you can't taste the veggies when you put it as a part of the recipe, you can taste the veggies or else you wouldn't put it as part of the recipe, okay? So get the veggies out of the recipe. We ain't need that, okay? That's just, that's one of mine. Uh, some people uh, said, uh, one person said that I would rather live alone on a deserted island for the rest of my life than drink a glass of milk. Uh, I didn't know milk was that, you know, big a deal. Uh, somebody said that all meat tastes like chicken, such as frog legs, snake, or any other unique protein. So I don't know if you can eat snake. Is that allowed? But apparently it tastes like chicken to this person. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not supposed to lie, you know, up here behind the pulpit, but I have to just read what somebody wrote. Somebody said that oatmeal raisin cookies are far superior to chocolate chip. <laughs> what? What is this? <laughs> like, that's not, that's not a thing. <laughs> and maybe last but not least, particularly for those of us that are in the South, somebody said barbecue is not a verb. It's a noun. <laughs> Amen to that, right? <laughs> barbecue is something you eat. It is not something you do. That is called a cookout, okay? For those of you from up north, that is a cookout, not a barbecue. Um, but again, I'm thankful to you guys to be here today, and I share those kind of funny stories. Uh, if you've been with us in January, we've been in this series called The Prophets Foretold, where we have been looking at various Old Testament prophecies uh, that made their, saw their ultimate fulfillment in the coming Messiah. And so this evening, we're going to be looking at a passage um, that's not often looked at in the Bible because it happens right after Jesus was born. Normally, it's like Jesus is born. It's like the really exciting thing, and then we kind of just trail off from there. Uh, but we're looking at a passage this evening, not, not in the Old Testament, but just in the New Testament. And we're looking at a man and a woman as well who uh, read the Old Testament scriptures in such a way uh, that they knew when they saw the baby Jesus, when they, they, they saw this Messiah, they knew who he was, right? In other words, uh, the, the, they saw something that many people missed, right? They had their opinions and many people missed that they didn't see, that this man and this woman studied the Old Testament scriptures in such a way that they were able to tell that this is the Messiah. And we're going to see that uh, this evening. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 2. Um, if you don't, there's a black one somewhere around you if you would like to read along. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. Uh, Luke chapter 2, this is a couple of days after the birth of Jesus. And we're going to see an interesting turn of events starting in Luke chapter 2, verse 21. And here's what it says. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished, they, meaning Mary and Joseph, brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male uh, will be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice 
according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So what's happening here, just for some context, uh, is that in, in those ancient times, according to Jewish custom, um, after childbirth, women were ceremonially unclean uh, for 40 days, after which they would do a certain things, and then they would be clean again. And so this is when they go to the temple in Jerusalem, uh, which was about six miles from Bethlehem, again, about 40 days after Jesus was born to consecrate their firstborn to the Lord. Now, if you've been with us, especially the last few months, we were in the book of Exodus before Christmas. Uh, this is we first see happen in Exodus chapter 13. After the Israelites leave Egypt, um, they are commanded to dedicate their firstborn child as well as their livestock to the Lord as a show of honor and trust that everything ultimately belongs to God. And so this is what Mary and Joseph do with Jesus. Um, interestingly, uh, it says that they sacrificed or they gave a pair of turtle doves or pigeons, um, which indicates that Mary and jo jo uh, Joseph were poor, right? You were actually supposed to uh, sacrifice a lamb, but if you could not afford a lamb, you could do uh, two uh, pigeons or two turtle doves. So we see two things here. The Mary and Joseph are poor, but we also saw, we also see their piety, that they desired to honor and serve the Lord, right? In other words, it wasn't like God just chose somebody to, uh, for the family of the Messiah to come because he needed a family to send Jesus from. But there is something significant about both Joseph and Mary that he would choose them to have the honor of raising the Messiah. And so this is what they do. Uh, they go to the temple to, uh, in Jerusalem to, uh, to, uh, to give us a, to, what am I trying to say? Uh, they go to the temple to Jerusalem to dedicate, there we go, I was gonna say sacrifice. I'm like, that's not right. <laughs> to dedicate Jesus. This would be a whole different sermon. Uh, but come back in Easter for part two. Um, anyway, <laughs> for verse 25, let's keep going. To after they're dedicating Jesus. Oh man, here it says, says this. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Now, we don't know anything else about Simeon other than what we read here in this text. Um, and so we know that he is old. And we know that he loved the Lord and that he would see the consolation or put another way, the comfort or the redemption for Israel before he died. Uh, now, this redemption would be accomplished through the Lord's anointed one or through the Messiah. Uh, and now what's interesting here is that, in other words, Simeon read and studied the, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible in such a way that led him to believe that the Messiah was coming and led him to be able to identify this Messiah when so many other people missed what was going on. Again, he read the Old Testament, he prayed, he studied in such a way that he saw that this is the ultimate fulfillment that the Lord's anointed one has come. And I think this is significant. And again, we've said this a lot the past few months, but it's Christmas. And so I'm just going to say it one more time. What we see happening here, or rather what Simeon sees happening here throughout scriptures is this, that scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Again, it's not a random collection of events or stories, and then somehow the Messiah finally comes. Simeon saw throughout the law and the prophets that there was a unified story ultimately seeing its culmination in this coming of a Messiah. And again, not a random series of events, but purposely documented in such a way that God's redemption was coming. Uh, in other words, what this means is that Jesus doesn't appear in a vacuum. 
It doesn't appear in a vacuum. There, there was more going on. And what happens when we understand, particularly the Hebrew Bible, in such a way that it was pointing to Jesus, it makes what Jesus was doing more significant. Right? If, if Jesus just had come in a vacuum, if God had just decided to come one day, that would be cool, but it wouldn't nearly be as impactful as it is. And, and so maybe to illustrate this for you, for example, uh, I want to show you a few pictures that are significant to me. Now, if you're around my age or my generation, when you see these pictures, they're going to make you feel some sort of way because you understand the context of what they, were, what they were in or what they were part of. And if you are older or younger, they might not mean the same to you because you don't understand the story behind them. So here we go. Here's the first one. Here's the first picture. Right here, right? Blockbuster. Man, this was the thing when I was a kid, not just for movies, but for video games, right? Go get that Super Nintendo. It was awesome. Me and my brother, my older brother, we had to take turns every time we went. That He got to choose the video game one time, and then I got to choose the video game uh, the other time. And of course, the one he chose was boring. But when I got to choose, it was a lot of fun. In fact, uh, in Statesville, North Carolina, where my grandparents live, uh, their Blockbuster is no longer there, but it hasn't been rented out since they left. And so like on the little strip mall that it's in, it still has the sign. And so every time I'm there, I'm just like, the feels, man. It just hits me in a certain way that if you did not experience this, especially as a child, you look at Blockbuster and you're like, I don't know what that is. Is that like what gave birth to Netflix? I don't know, right? Because it's not the same to you. Uh, here's another one. Toys R Us, right? You know it was a good day. You know the Lord was good and his favor was upon you when you went <laughs> to Toys R Us. Now, some of you that are older, maybe the older generation, my parents, uh, for example, you see this with like, man, we wasted a lot of money there. Like, I am glad this thing no longer exists, right? Because it is just not good for me. But again, if you're my age, you see this and there's feelings and emotions there. Here's another one. <clears throat> the Game Boy, amen. Right, the Game Boy was awesome because finally you could like play games, not just like in a thing hooked up to your TV, but in the car. Now, some of you don't, you know, you don't realize this if you're younger than me, but like when it was dark outside, you couldn't play it. And so you'd be like, every five seconds when you pass a street lamp, you like, you could move and then you have to hit pause. And then you can move and hit the pause. And what happened was, you know, our parents, they told us they couldn't turn the car light on because it's illegal. Well, come to find out, it ain't illegal, right? They lied to us. You can drive with the light on in your car. You will not be pulled over. But that's what our parents said, right? So when I see this, it means something to me because I know the context behind it. I think we got a, a couple more. What's the next one? right? A flip phone, right? So I don't know where you are in the evolution of cell phones when you got your first cell phone. I got my first cell phone after I got my driver's license in high school. I had a flip phone. Um, this was like when you had to text, remember you had to like press the button three times. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, you had the, the T9 and they had like, they had like world championships for like the fastest texter, like who could press the button the most, right? When you see a flip phone, if you didn't have one, you're like, eh. But if you did, it means something, right? It's not just a random picture. I think we got two more. Um, this next one, probably the greatest human invention in the last 100 years, AOL Instant Messenger, okay? AOL Instant Messenger. Now, some of you, it's like whatever, but some of us, uh, some of us keyboard warriors, this was life-changing. Now, for example, again, if you've been around, especially the last couple of months, you've heard uh, some of the uh, Instant Messenger stories of some of our staff. So, uh, for example, uh, Brian, the last time that he preached, he's on staff here a few months ago, he talked about how he's you know, a pretty introverted and shy kid, and so uh, he really liked this girl who's now his wife uh, in middle school, but he would never talk to her in person. But when he got home, 
Like he had some, he was spitting some fire on that keyboard, right? Um, or Adam, you know, the church that we sent out a few months ago, the last time that he preached in October, uh, he told us that his screen name was Hello Ladies 45, right? I mean, that was, you know, to, he was spitting game. Um, I have, a, I have a gift for you guys this evening, just as a side note. I have never shared this publicly, but it's Christmas, and it's been a hard year. Um, and so Brian and Adam were not the only ones that had instant messenger game. And in fact, I don't even think my wife knows this, uh, because if I had told her this, you know, she had dumped me twice before we got married. I don't think that we would, be, I don't think, it'd be, I think I'd be out of chances. Um, <laughs> And so I've never publicly shared this, but uh, I don't know what it was like this for you, if you had Instant Messenger, but like me and my friends, we changed our screen name like every six months. I don't know why. And I don't remember like any of them except for one. When I was in middle school, I had a screen name titled The Hot Guy 105. (laughs) And let me just tell you, I could spit some game on Instant Messenger, right? And it's like, you know, when somebody logged on and you hear the door crack open, and it's like, it's a cutie, and you're like, do I, do I type to her first, or do I wait till she, like, types to me? Like, it was a big thing. Okay, anyway, this is not about me and Instant Messenger. But, like, this is, you know, for those of us that experienced it, it's not a random thing. Like, it means something, and this is what it meant to Simeon. Uh, maybe I'll just do one more, uh, maybe uh, for nostalgia for all of us. So regardless of how old or young you are, uh, you can relate to this. Uh, this is a mass amount of people with no masks on. So this was like, you know, I don't know if you remember what this is like, um, but this is life uh, before this year started. And so um, I say all that to say this. Again, scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. It's not a random thing. And so Simeon saw the scriptures in such a way that this child who was born had some real eternal and massive significance. And in fact, if we continue uh, at verse 27, Here's what, he say, here's what Simeon says to Mary and Joseph. It says, Guided by the Spirit, he, uh, meaning Simeon, entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in, in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation." You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, right? Simeon, guided by the Holy Spirit, went to the temple of the day that Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to dedicate him so that he could see the Lord's salvation for all peoples. Now, this is a significant phrase because in Luke chapter 2, all people is a theme of this chapter. So, for example, in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, when it says a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be counted or registered. This is why Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem. Um, it can also be translated as when uh, Caesar Augustus uh, requested that the whole world be counted or the whole inhabited world be counted. Of course, the Roman Empire, there were people outside the Roman Empire, but to them, they were strong and powerful. And so if you're outside the Roman Empire, you didn't matter. And so literally in Luke chapter 2 verse 1, they were registering the whole world. Or in Luke chapter 2 verse 10, when the shepherds are visited by the angels the night that Jesus is born and they say, go to Bethlehem and they tell him that the Savior of the world or the Messiah of the world, or they said, I proclaim to you, do not be afraid, the good news of great joy that will be for all people. What Luke is trying to show us here that what's happening is not just for Jesus and Mary and Joseph, not even just for Israel, but it is for the whole world. And this is what Simeon is pointing out. So again, verse 31, he says, you have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, which is the non-Jews, and glory to your people, Israel. 
In other words, what he's saying is that this hope, this Messiah, this baby, this Jesus is a light to the Gentiles who were in darkness, who had no hope. And at the same time, he brings glory or honor to Israel from which or from the people or from the nation that the Savior came. In other words, what's happening here is maybe a a well-known phrase, but it's true that Jesus is the light of the world. That's what Luke 2 is showing us. This is not just for a specific people and a specific ethnic group and a specific part of the world for a specific time. Jesus is the light for the whole world, for the Jews and the Gentiles, no matter your gender or age or ethnicity or socioeconomic status or where you live. This Messiah is for all people. And this is significant because if you're somewhat familiar with the Old Testament and the scriptures, we see that Israel and Israel's leaders time and time again fail. And just like we fail, and what we see throughout Scripture is that Jesus ultimately is who we fail to be. Right? Jesus, not your efforts, and you're trying your hard, and you're giving, and you're trying not to be a bad person, but Jesus is. Not we are. Jesus is who we fail to be. Right? Israel failed. Their leaders failed. And yet Jesus came to be a light in the world, to do for us what nobody could do for themselves. That's why in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says this much. He says, I am the light of the world. He is who we fail to be. And so if we continue, here's what it says next in verse 33. He says, his father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. What Simeon is doing here is he's echoing the words of Isaiah chapter 8, that there will be a divided response to this Messiah. Right? Some will worship him and bow down and be excited. Some will be indifferent. Some will be threatened and actually want to kill him. Uh, but what he's saying here is that Jesus is coming away uh, to, to cause a response, but also to do something to Mary that she does not yet understand. Right? What he's talking about here, about piercing her own soul, he's foretelling her future sorrow at the cross, where Jesus is mistreated and killed and crucified that he's going to do amazing things, but he's going to cause a lot of pain and suffering for Mary as well. In other words, what Simeon is saying here is what's true for all of us. And that is that Jesus compels a response, right? When you hear the story of what Jesus has done, right? The light of the world has come to make it possible for you and I to be redeemed, to be rescued, to be loved, to be given grace and given mercy. Like that's not like a random thing, Right? That compels a response to, from us. Like, is this true or is it not true? If it is true, what does it mean? How does it change our life and our beliefs and our world if we see Jesus for who he is, right? It's kind of like this. Again, many of you know this um, as a Duke fan. Uh, you know, I talk about Duke semi-often. It's, college basketball is really boring this year, and so I don't talk about them much this year. Um, but every once in a while, uh, Duke hits buzzer beaters, right? And that compels a response from me because I get really excited about them. Uh, I'm not like, even though I'm really into it, I I just kind of sit on the couch for most of the game. Like I don't really yell that much. I don't say much. But if the game is close, what I'll do is I'll stand. Like if there's like three minutes or left, it's a close game. I'll like stand up like right in front of the TV. Or maybe if we have like a coffee table, whatever, I'll stand on the coffee table. I don't know why. (laughs) Getting taller, it helps. But like I'll do this, right? Uh, And so when buzzer beaters happen, it's not like, and not indifferent to, like it compels a response from me, right? Uh, Particularly when Duke beats Carolina. 
at the buzzer. Like, that is an awesome thing, okay? And so uh, when I was in college, it happened the first time. Duke was the far uh, inferior team that year. They were losing the entire game. They hit a buzzer beater at the end of the game. I was at my friend's house, and I was running around. I took my shirt off. I was, like, doing this over my head. I, like, jumped on his back, jumped on the couch. It was awesome, right? And then last year happened, right? Last year happened when Duke again, beat Carolina at the buzzer, not just once, but like kind of twice in one game. It was incredible. Now, the thing about this was last year, Carolina was terrible, right? COVID has been awful for a lot of us, but it actually helped Carolina because they weren't going to make the tournament anyway. That's neither here nor there. But Duke was losing like the whole game. And I'm like, this stinks. I'm going to hear about it from everybody because Carolina's trash. Duke is good. Um, and then comes to the end of the game, Duke is down and there's like two seconds left and they intentionally miss a free throw and they somehow get the rebound. They make the shot and they force the game to go to overtime. And so that was the first one. So I didn't take any clothes off then. I just ran around the house. I like opened the front door and I was like, Duke made the shot. And my kids were awake. And so Finley is like running around and Roman, he was too. He didn't know anything, but he likes to yell because I was yelling. And so he's running through the house, just going, rah, rah, right? So I'm really excited, right? We're going to overtime. I'm like Duke's a better team. They should win. So we go to overtime. Uh, they're uh, we. <laughs> they go to overtime, <laughs> and uh, and they go up by five. And I'm like, they're gonna win. And then it's only five minutes. And then somehow whatever happens, and they're down by five. And I'm like, they're gonna lose. Like they're gonna lose again. This is terrible. And then it happens again at the buzzer. Duke misses the shot, gets the rebound, lays it in, and not not to tie the game, but to win the game. Which of course encourages an appropriate response. I start yelling. I take my shirt off. I fling it. I'm running around the house. I pick up Finley, and I'm like shaking her. I put her down. I pick up Roman. I'm like shaking him, and he's screaming, and we're running around the house, and it's awesome, right? Until about a couple of weeks later, we had some friends over for dinner, and I don't know what was happening or what the conversation was about, but Finley says to me in front of them, Dada, do you remember when Duke won, and you took all your clothes off and ran around the house? I was like, Finley, like I didn't, like I didn't take my clothes off. Like there were still clothes on me. Maybe not as much as normal, but I didn't like, if you were not awake, maybe, but you're awake. So I didn't do that. And so I was like, don't say this again. And then, you know, <laughs> I was reminded of this a couple weeks ago when the basketball season was started. And I was like, Finley, Duke plays tonight. I'm so excited. And she goes, are you going to take their, your clothes off if they win? <laughs> like, I don't take my clothes off. Anyway. All that to say, what am I talking about? Jesus here. <laughs> Jesus, maybe, maybe you don't have to take your shirt off, okay? But like, if you understand what's happening, like Simeon, you, you can't look at this and be unmoved, right? Something significant is happening here that God himself has come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And when you see and when you understand that God loves you right where you are and cares for you right where you are, it compels a response in us. Even, even in 2020 when life is hard and difficult and not going the way that we would hope, we can still have hope and joy and even worship when, when things are hard because he compels a response because of what he has done for us. And that is what he says here. And then we'll conclude the last part of Luke. We'll read this as well. It says this in verse 36. It says, There is also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, which uh, if we had time, we would go into the history of that. It's really awesome, but we don't have now. So just let you know, Anna's awesome as well, okay? Uh, there's a prophetess named Anna. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. 
At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. In other words, like Simeon, Anna uh, sought and understood the Lord and the scriptures in such a way that she knew that the redemption of the world had come when she met Jesus, right? The light of the world is here. Now, when we talk about this, it's significant, especially when we talk about compelling a response, because as good of a news that this is for the world, what this also means for us is this, that Jesus is the redemption of those who trust in him. Right? Jesus is the redemption of those who trust of him. Listen to me, uh, Christmas is only good news if you receive it. Right? It is only good news. It is only life-changing, soul-altering news if you receive it. Otherwise, it's just a cool story. As my kids like to say, I don't know where they got this cool story, bro. That's all it is, right? Unless you actually receive what Christ came to do and what he offered for you. Right? The good news of the gospel is that Christ came, Why? to save us, to rescue us, to redeem us, because we could not do it on our own. But the only way to receive his love and his grace is not to earn it, but to actually receive it, right? We have to do something with it. Otherwise, it's just news, right? It is not good news and amazing news and earth-changing news if it's just something that goes in one ear and out the other. To know that God loves you so much that he came changes everything. It means that he loves us, that he can be trusted, and that he is good even when we have doubts and questions and don't know what is going on in the world around us. Jesus is the redemption of those who actually trust in him. Otherwise, he doesn't do anything for you because you don't ask him to do what he has done. And so to close, I just want to read one more passage, if I can, really quick, talking about this idea of he's the redemption, but how does he accomplish this? And what does this mean for us? I want to read to you First uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Uh, it's one of my favorite passages in scripture. Again, we could spend a lot of time on here, but I won't. Uh, this was written by John, who was uh, the last living disciple of Jesus. He was the only one not killed uh, for claiming that Jesus rose from the dead. He was tortured, but he survived. Uh, he's writing in First John to encourage people to see and understand Jesus and his sacrifice for them, and to follow him, and to resist sin in their lives so that they can honor God and allow other people to experience the light of Jesus. But then he says this in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my little children, or to the fellow believers, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. What it says here is absolutely unbelievable that Jesus himself is our advocate, that he is fighting and that he is praying and he is desiring good on our behalf, not because we're awesome or we deserved it, but because he loves us. He is our advocate in heaven at the right hand of the Father saying, that is my son, that is my daughter whom I love, who will one day enter in the presence of God's kingdom because of what I have done for them. In other words, right now, Jesus is fighting for you. He's praying for you. He's desiring that you understand that he loves you and cares for you. He himself, God himself, the creator of everything, is our advocate. And we, again, we know that this is not just some feel-good philosophy, but he demonstrated it in coming to the world to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, which is why here at New City Church we say a lot, all, all, often that those of us that are in Christ, that follow and trust and believe in him, have nothing to prove and no one to impress. We have nothing to prove and no one to impress because God has done it for us. He has proven everything for us on the cross. And we have no one to impress because we are fully loved and accepted by God. 
In other words, as I close uh, this evening, and really, as we close out what has been a very difficult and hard year, and I know sometimes we can make jokes about, like, I did like the masks and the craziness of everything that's going on, but if we're, if we're being honest, this year is hard for all of us. It's been difficult for all of us. And the good news of what we're celebrating this evening is that in the midst of all of that, what we see, what Simeon saw, what Anna saw, what we experience today is that Jesus is the hope for a weary world. Jesus is the hope, not COVID going away, not uh, your financial status getting better and the stimulus checks coming in and you getting a better job or not losing your job, uh, not your health. Um, not where you live, and I'm not saying those things are unimportant. They are, they are vitally important, and they, infect us, they impact us in real, tangible ways. But our hope is not in those things. Our hope is in the Messiah who came for us to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He is our hope. Not your job, not your efforts, not your trying really hard, not how well or how bad this year went for you, not anything about you, but Him. He is our hope for a weary world. And so we can celebrate like we are this morning or this evening, even going into an unknown 2021 and all the ramifications that this year has had for many of us. We can believe and we can go forward in faith knowing God loves us, even if we don't understand what is happening and cares for us, even in the midst of our doubts, because that is why Christ came. Jesus is the hope for a weary world. Let's pray.